0: Amen. Well, right here on the front end of the sermon, before we jump into today's message, I've got something to share with you. It's something to celebrate. As uh, those of you who are in the room can look around, and those of you who are joining us online, um, you may have noticed that things have been getting a little tight in here uh, these last few weeks. And so I'm excited to report that at the September meeting of the local board of administration, our main governing board, We had a lengthy discussion which culminated with a decision to add a second Sunday service on Sunday mornings to accommodate our growing congregation for the foreseeable future. We recognize that this involves a significant change and that uh, change can be difficult, but we felt like such a step forward also opens the doors to new opportunities as well as further growth and impact. And due to the reduced socially distanced seating available, We believe that this change is necessary and will continue to evaluate the change as we move forward. The reason for this announcement uh, is to share with you the reasons behind the change, what is actually changing, and what's not changing as we move forward in faith. So the reason that we're making this change from one service to two service on Sunday mornings is that our mission is to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong and to help them grow their faith as we become increasingly a healthy family of families. Now over the past six months there has been a lot of uncertainty and there's been a great deal of change in nearly every part of our lives but two things are for sure. First, God has been incredibly faithful and second, Linwood has remained a strong and healthy and vibrant congregation even in the midst of service closures, major disruptions, and a host of other challenges. So in a season when many churches have seen significant portions of their congregation drift away from active involvement, Linwood has consistently experienced strong participation, both online and in person, as well as in discipleship groups, Sunday school classes, and other events and activities as they've been made available. And we're seeing new people come. Every week there's new people walking through our doors looking for a place to belong. And they're joining us online and we're seeing our reach digitally extend beyond even our home state and and people are participating and, you know, being engaged in this congregation that way. Since we returned to in-person meetings a little over three months ago at the beginning of June, we've seen a growing trend of increased attendance in this service. And due to socially distanced seating, we've gone from about 440 available seats to about 240 seats in the room, of which not all are available in order to maintain space between parties and so forth. So we've got about 160 available seats, and we've been averaging 148, and I think we're over that this Sunday. So the last five weeks, we've really seen this sort of come to a head. And that means that when people come into the service, the room looks full, and available seating is not a immediately identifiable. That can be really exciting at first. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I love preaching to a full room and to have lots of people out there and to see that. Um, But it can quickly lead to a lack of invitations and even people coming to visit the church turning around and walking back out. And so the appearance of a crowded sanctuary uh, is exciting to those of us who call this our church home already, but it can be discouraging to people who are coming for the first time, and are more reluctant to explore and look for a seat. So, while it's a wonderful problem to have, it can eventually keep us from fulfilling our mission to reach people, give them a place to belong, help them grow in their faith. And so, here's what's changing: beginning on October 25th, so you got a little bit of time. On October 25th, we'll add a second worship service at 9 a.m. The 9 and 10:30 services will feature the same worship team, the same songs, the same sermon, and the same 60 to 65 minute expected time frame. (laughs) A couple of you are laughing at that. Both the 9 and 1030 services will be streamed live on our Facebook page and our YouTube page, so you can catch either one of them if you're joining us online. And the 1030 service will continue to offer nursery and pre-K programming with the hopes of adding elementary uh, as soon as we have the volunteers. And the long-term vision, should this become the new normal for Linwood, would be to have uh, our Kidsway programming at both the 9 o'clock and 10.30 services. We're just going to need some additional volunteers to step in. Another change that accompanies this is that we're going to ask our our 9 o'clock Sunday school hour to move to 10.30, in order to evenly distribute this, the seats uh, between the two services. So uh, that will be a, a, a small change. But a minor benef- or major benefit to this change is that families will no longer have to choose between worshiping together and serving outside the sanctuary. You can attend one and serve one, or you can attend ch- together and then go to Sunday school together. And uh, so that is going to be Uh, I think, a real blessing to a lot of our families. And we hope it's going to open up additional opportunities for individuals and families to not only worship together, but to serve together. And so I want to ask you, uh, if you're in the room, to take out this connection card. I didn't mention this in the welcome because I was going to talk about it extensively here. But if you can possibly serve on one of our teams uh, as we make this transition, that would be phenomenal. We would love to have you join one of the teams. And the two teams that would be the highest priority would be our children's ministry and our four-year ministry. Those are the ones that would be foreseeably doubling the number of people that we need to serve coffee and to greet as they come in and to be ushers and to be uh, involved in that. And then in our children's ministry as we want to open up additional rooms down the hall. If you can serve in one of those ministries, just fill out the front of the card and then flip it over, turn to the back and check one or more of those boxes where you might be able to participate and to be engaged. And you can place that in the offering in just a minute. If you're watching online, there is a digital connection card that's available at the events page of our website I'm sure they'll put a link um, in on the Facebook uh, feed as well. But I also want to let you know a couple of things that are not changing. All right? We're going to continue to pursue the same mission, the same vision, the same core values to be a healthy family of, health, of, of families with unity and alignment around our mission and our core values. The two services themselves will not change from what you experience on a typical 1030 service currently. The family seating that's at the back of the sanctuary will also remain and be available for families to worship together. And we're going to keep offering coffee at both services and water as well. And, you know, we're going to look for ways to offer opportunities and even expand opportunities for the congregation to come together in combined uh, services and combined outreach and combined uh, fellowship as well. But on behalf of the staff and the LBA, we want to thank you for being a part of our family of families, whether you join us in person or you join us online, and for staying active and engaged throughout this really unusual season. And we want to ask you to pray for this transition to go smoothly and that it would enable us to reach new people and to continue to grow in this community and increasing our impact here in Sioux Falls and around the world. And along that line, I want to call attention to the the prayer cards that we we mentioned these last week, we put them on the seats again. Uh, this is really a great opportunity for you to get a little prayer reminder uh, built into your life to put this on your bathroom mirror to maybe take an extra one. There are some extra ones on the tables as you leave and give this to somebody. Somebody shared with me yesterday at an event that I was at that she had taken a couple of these and given one to her grandson and given one to somebody else and and that 's a great a great outreach tool as we come down the home stretch in the election, uh, which really just I know maybe you're sick of it, but we need to be praying about this year's election more than ever before and praying for God's will to be done in our community, in our state, in our nation, and around our world. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to take one or more of those with you and to be praying. Be praying for Linwood and be praying for our community and our nation. All right. So now I'm excited to get into today's message. And we're continuing our series. It's kind of the the middle message in a five week series uh, titled The You Next to You, where we have been kind of exploring this idea that Christianity is all about you until you become a Christian. And then you become an ambassador for Christ. And your focus is on reaching the you next to you and helping more believers come into the family of God. So the first week of the series, we looked at what's true about you. We're going to talk about the you next to you. We got to know what's true about you and what's true about you. If you're in Christ, you're a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And that is good news. But it's not just good news for you. It's good news for everyone. And it's available to everyone. And so as we as we live out our lives as these beloved children of God in whom Christ dwells and delights, we realize that there's a second bottom line, that what's true about us is also true about the people around us, that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that they have a decision to make, and that we have an opportunity to be a link in the chain that brings them to faith in Christ. And it was interesting, this past week I read an article from the Human Genome Project, not my normal reading, but it caught my attention from the headline. And as I read the article, it explained something that I did not know. It explained that the human DNA, if you've ever seen the double helix, the human DNA has what they call 3.2 million base pairs, that there are these base pairs that determine everything about us. And every living thing has this DNA. But what the article said that was so interesting to me is that of those 3.2 million base pairs of DNA, only 20 million of them in a human being have any variation from one human to the next. And furthermore, so that's like 0.6%. Furthermore, the article went on to explain that the the average, you put any two people next to each other and they will be 99.9% or greater genetically the same. That the genetic variation between, between somebody living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and somebody born in Africa or China or Europe or anywhere else in the world is less than one tenth of 1%. And why that caught my attention is that it makes this point that you have no idea how much alike you are, to the you next to you. In fact, you could say that you are more like the you next to you than you can possibly imagine. Even if you look different, sound different, talk different, come from different backgrounds, God has created us, and there are far more similarities between us than there are differences among us. And I found that to be fascinating as we were looking at this subject. So last week, we shifted the focus from you to the you next to you. And we had this bottom line, as sort of a bottom line for the whole series, the idea that religion, the focus of religion is you. That religion is ultimately people trying to do good to get God to favor them so that they'll have their needs met and their desires met and their preferences met. And so they offer sacrifices or they do acts of penance or they do various things in order to appease a god or gods. That's religion all the way around the world. And the good news is that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with God himself. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about this a lot here at Linwood, that Jesus came and gave his life to bring you into the family of God, to be in a personal relationship with you, where you can take on the character and the nature of Christ himself in your own life. And furthermore, he said right before he left... He said that the first and the greatest commandment, This was the last thing we talked about last week, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, he basically said that you love God by loving the you next to you. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength as you love your neighbor as yourself. That when we are loving our neighbors, when we're loving the you next to you, we are loving God himself. And the real practical application of this is that you love your neighbor when you're kind and you're fair and you're gracious to them. And when you treat them the way that you would want to be treated yourself by them. And so that was last week. This week, we're taking a step forward in a message titled, Woe There. And if you understand uh, a little bit of my sense of humor, or lack thereof, uh, you know that woe is spelled like the woe that Jesus pronounces over the scribes and the Pharisees that we're going to be looking at. Now, I grew up in Wyoming, and I know that when you tell a horse, woe, that's W-O-A-H. So it's a little bit of a play on words. We call that pastoral humor. Some think it's an oxymoron. Some disagree, as evidenced by their laughter. But we're going to be looking at some woes. And as we look at these woes, we're going to see what Jesus was against and you might say, well, this seems a little out of character, and if you've read the Gospels a lot, you know that the vast majority of Jesus' ministry gets to the heart of what he's for. But there are a few places where he makes it crystal clear what he's against, and we don't want him to be against us. So that's why we're paying attention to this today. Next week, we'll kind of take a step out of that as we bring this message down the home stretch. But if you're wondering if this is out of character, I would say no, it's not. Because Jesus is the most authentic and genuine person that has ever lived. So there is nothing he ever did that was out of character. Everything he did was in character. And so he's revealing to us the things that he's against, even though the vast majority of his ministry were about the things he was for. And that causes me to ask an important question. Uh, As I think about the modern church in America and around the world, Would people say the same about us? Is the vast majority of our ministry about what we're for or what we're against? And as I read the news and as I see what's going on, it feels like a lot of times the church gets painted with a broad brush of what it is against. And Jesus spent the majority of his time talking about what he was for. And so we can learn from him in that regard. But first, we need to understand what he was against. And the first thing that he was against, as we'll see in this passage, is hypocrisy. So let me, let me bring us in from Luke 11, chapter 37 to 40, or Luke 11, verses 37 to 46. Now, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee Noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal was surprised. Then Jesus, the Lord, said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So I want to pause here. And talk about what's, what's happening here, because this gives us an insight to the first thing that Jesus was against. He was against hypocrisy. He was against making the outside look better than the inside. He was against keeping up appearances at the expense of an inner transformation. And in Matthew's gospel, this, this phrase, "You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of deaf men's bones," is followed by an instruction: First, clean the inside." Of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be cleaned also. And I brought a cup up here to sort of illustrate this. It's a really great object lesson. Like, you can clean the outside only of this cup if you turn it upside down and let the water run over it and not allow any of the water to get in it. But if you make it your goal to clean the inside of the cup and dish, it's impossible to clean the inside without also cleaning the outside because you're holding it on the outside and you're cleaning it as you do. And he's making a point here that we need to be transformed from the inside out, that it's not going to happen by just changing our behavior, by just following a list of do's and don'ts and checking all the boxes when there's no inner transformation, when there's no inner uh, heart change. And Luke's gospel sort of drives this home with the phrase, give what is inside the dish to the poor. And everything will be clean for you. He's basically saying, Give your heart to the poor, give your heart to God. And a more literal translation would be give as alms, give as alms what is inside back to God. But the New International Version translates it give to the poor because we don't talk about giving alms as much today. If you look at some of the more literal translations like the ESV or the NASB, they they make this a little more clear that we're giving our hearts back to God. And as we give our hearts to God, he cleanses them and purifies them and we begin a transformation from the inside out. So it's not a gospel of sin management. It's not a gospel of of behavior modification. It's a gospel of heart transformation, that we give our hearts to Jesus and he cleans them up and he transforms us from the inside out. So he's against hypocrisy. He's against making the outside look better than the inside. In verse 42, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all the other kinds of garden herbs. And he's kind of saying, you know, not just the money, but even the stuff that grows in your garden, you're careful to tithe on that. You're really, really good at religion. You're really, really good at following the law. But, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It was good to do the latter, without leaving the former undone, that it's not either or, it's both and, and that when the heart is transformed, you don't play the either or game. You're glad to give a tithe of everything you receive. You understand it comes from him. It comes from God alone. And so you give a back to him. You say, Lord, whatever you have entrusted to me, I gladly give back and I do justice and I do love you. And I live that out for you. And so he's kind of driving point home that loving God without loving people misses the boat. In fact, it's impossible. You can't love God and hate people. You can't say, you know, I've got religion down, but I don't, I don't love people. That's not how he set it up to work. And he continues uh, against... hypocrisy when he continues in verse 43 and 44. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. This hypocrisy just has no place in the kingdom of God. He's saying, you Pharisees, you look great from the outside and you love all the accolades that come with that. But inside, Inside, you are spiritually dead. Inside, there is no life. And so, I think it's important as we think about this, as we think about loving God or saying we love God without loving people, there's an important caveat here between loving people and condoning sin, right? You say, well, should we just not call a spade a spade? Should we not confront people with their sin? And I would say no. I, I, I think part of loving people is letting them know when they're on the wrong path. All right? If, if, if I'm on the eastbound I-90 rest stop it's out here between Sioux Falls and Mitchell or somewhere around there, and I'm in that eastbound rest area and I'm walking in and somebody's on the map and they're, talking to, they're pointing to their kids about how exciting it's going to be when they get to the Black Hills, am I doing them a favor if I just quietly let them continue going east when I know that they're trying to get west to the Black Hills? No. But what I probably shouldn't do is go up and slap them upside the head and call them idiots or shame on you for being in the wrong lane. No, I should probably go up to them with an artful and winsome uh, message that says, listen, I think you're trying to get to the Black Hills, but you're in the eastbound lane. You're, you're going east, and you're not going to get to the Black Hills for a long time by going east. So I think it's time to turn 180 degrees and go in a different direction. And that that example sort of illustrates how we confront sin. Do it in the way that you would want somebody to do it to you. Do it in a way that brings people along with you and helps people see that you're really there for them, that you really care about them, that you're concerned for them, and that you want what's best for them. And he doesn't stop there. It's interesting. Verse 45, I always get a kick out of verse 45, and maybe you'll see why. Uh, He said, one of the experts of the law answered him and said, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. That's kind of like when your older brother's getting a spanking and you interrupt mom and say, hey, you're insulting me by giving him that spanking. And mom turns to you just like Jesus turns to them and says, oh, well, you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. They're guilty of the same things. The experts of the law are doing the same things that he is rebuking the Pharisees for doing. And he gets to a third point, and we'll skip down to verse uh, 52 that goes right along with this. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. And when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. You see, they were using religion and religious systems to elevate themselves and to relegate others to lower status. And Jesus would have none of it. We see that in verse 46, loading them down with burdens that they can hardly carry and you don't lift a finger to help them. You've taken away the key to knowledge, and you yourself have not even entered, but you've hindered those who are entering. they have created these religious systems that elevate themselves and push other people's down. And lastly, we see in verse 53 and 54 that that their response really showed the, the bankrupt nature of their hearts. Their response was to try to disprove Jesus, to try to tear down what he was saying. And they were just looking for some loophole. They were just looking for try to catch him in something that he said. And so that's everything that Jesus is against. He's against hypocrisy. He's against loving God without loving people. He's against using religion or religious systems to elevate ourselves and to put other people down. And the rest of the Gospels tell us what he's for. The rest of the Gospels make it clear that Jesus is for people. And he's for loving and serving and bringing people into the kingdom of god he's for people there's nothing in all the world that moves jesus that moves god like people and that's the heart of the gospel he loved the whole world that's crystal clear but he loves the people most we're made in his image we bear the image of god himself he so loved the world that he gave he gave of himself he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life And to come into the kingdom of God. That's what God, that's what God is for. That's what Jesus is for. That's what his whole ministry was for. Was making a way for people to come in to the kingdom of God. And so the bottom line of these woes, the bottom line of this message for us today is that religion, taken to its extreme, leads to spiritual pride. You see that in the the Pharisees. You see that in the scribes. You see that in the teachers of the law. The religion leads to spiritual pride, but following Christ leads to a radical humility. And when I say radical, I'm not saying it like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, I'm saying like to the root. That's what that word means. Radical, to the root, to the core of who we are. Think about radishes. Radishes are a root vegetable. They have the the same root word. That there's a radical humility that comes when we have that inner transformation, when our hearts are transformed from the inside out. And he illustrates it and drives the point home very, very well. A little bit later in Luke's gospel, in Luke 18, if you want to turn to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, he sets up this this difference, this gap between the hypocrisy of the religious elite and the humility of, of those who are seeking Christ wholeheartedly. And so in verse 10 of Luke chapter 18, we read this, I'm sorry, in Luke uh, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And pause there just so you understand the terms. Pharisees uh, probably should have, shared this earlier. What, what is a Pharisee? How many of you know what a Pharisee is? And how many of you are like, what's well, a Pharisee? Pharisees were sort of the, the leaders of the Jewish culture. They were religious leaders. They were highly regarded. They were, they were legalistically perfect. Like they knew it and they followed it. They knew the law and they followed the law. And they were so focused on following the law and having an A plus in religion That over time, the vast majority of them had forgot about God's love for people and weren't loving God or people at all. They were well-versed in Scripture. They had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. How many of you have memorized a whole chapter? Okay, that's 187 chapters of Scripture that they had memorized, that a Pharisee would have memorized and could start and could tell you any, any passage And so that's a Pharisee, and they're contrasted with a tax collector. Now, a tax collector is not just like an IRS agent today. A tax collector in this time, in this uh, world, was a traitor to the Jewish people. Rome had moved in, and they had occupied the the area. They had occupied uh, Judea, Israel, the land uh, that the Israelites lived in, and they were taxing them. That's what you did when you, when you were a foreign nation that occupied. Uh, you would just tax them basically to the brink of, of destruction. Get as much out of them as you can. And the tax collectors had, tra- had been a traitor to their own people, and uh, they were synonymous with sinners, with social outcasts, with the lowest of the low. They were not held in high regard at all. They were sneered at, and they were despised even by their own family. And so those are the two people that, that Jesus is contrasting uh, between. And the Pharisee in verse 11 stood up, and Jesus says, He prayed about himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. So... Jesus tells us the Pharisee prayed about himself. He thanked God for himself and he quoted his resume back to God. He quoted his religious perfection back to God. But, verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He begs for mercy. He prays with humility. He recognizes his own sinfulness, and he's just throwing himself before God and begging God to be merciful and to give him some grace. And then Jesus puts a bow on the whole story when he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, this man went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, Will be exalted. Religion leads to spiritual pride. Christianity, following Christ, being transformed from the inside out, leads to a radical humility. And I would remind you that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not running yourself down. It's not having a poor self-image. It's putting others first. It's not thinking about yourself at all. It's thinking about the you next to you and making your life about bringing the gospel, the good news that you have received and is transforming you from the inside out to bring that to others. Rick Warren says that very, very well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Less often, not looking down your nose at everybody else and congratulating yourself that you 're not like them, but saying, "God, how can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I be, uh, be your hands and feet in their life? How can I bring the good news of the gospel to them and i 'll close with one of my all time favorite cartoons I think i 've shared it here before if i haven 't i 'm sorry, and if I have it 's probably a good to have a little review it 's a comic strip uh, called Coffee." with Jesus. And uh, there's about a dozen or so different characters that pop up in this comic strip. This one's name is Carl. If your name is Carl, don't take it personally. Uh, But Carl just kind of is having a cup of coffee with Jesus. I recommend doing this on a regular basis. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and have a cup of coffee with Jesus. If you don't drink coffee, drink something else with Jesus. But have a conversation with Jesus. And Carl says to Jesus, it's like this, My stance on it is this. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How many of you have ever said that? I've said that. I'll be honest with you. I've said it a lot. I used to say it a lot. And Jesus says, I'll do you one better, Carl. Love the sinner. Hate your own sin. Just love the people and hate your own sin. And turn the mirror in for the sin and just love the people. And the next frame... Carl, speechless. <laughs> I was speechless the first time I saw this. I was speechless the first time I realized what was wrong with love the sinner, hate the sin. And I saw more of the Pharisee in that story than I saw Jesus in that story. You see, the Pharisee would say, love yourself and hate his sin, hate their sin, hate that one's sin. And it, Jesus is saying basically, Just love the you next to you, and the only sin you need to hate is your own. Like, work on yourself. Yes, we live in a sinful world. We should be praying for the redemption of the world. We should be praying for revival in the world, that people would radically turn their hearts back to God. Yes, absolutely. But when we want to hate the sin, a specific sin, we should look at ourselves first and make sure that there is no sin in us, that we have cleaned the inside as well as the outside, that we are being made holy. And being transformed from the inside out. Because too often, the sin that we hate is their sin. It's not sin in general. It's not my own sin. It's the sin that's out there instead of the sin that's in here. And the people of God need to make sure that we are hating our own sin before we hate anybody else's. Paul David Tripp says it this way. He says, sin causes me to be all too convinced of my own righteousness and all too focused on your sin. But spiritual clear-sightedness always leads to personal grief and confession, not condemnation of your neighbor. I think Jesus would agree. Because religion leads to spiritual pride. But following Christ should lead us to a radical humility. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you are with us. And that you are worthy of our praise. We thank you that you're moving in our midst. And we thank you, Lord. That when we are transformed from the inside out. You have promised that it will lead us. To a radical humility. Where we put others first. We follow you wholeheartedly. Because we're being transformed from the inside out. We ask you to do that in our lives right now, Lord. We pray that your spirit would move and that you would walk into this room and that you would touch the broken places in our lives, that you would pour out your spirit on your people and that we would respond in faith to whatever you show us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.